Welcome. I'm Melissa Durda, and this is Synergo's Cultivate the Soul podcast. Stories of purpose-driven philanthropy from around the world. Over this series, we explore together the intersection of contemplative practices, spirituality, philanthropy, and social impact. Join us as we dive into the personal journey of each guest and what they have discovered about the role of inner work on one's capacity to change the world. To learn more about each of our guests and view our full episode list, please visit synergos.org slash podcast. My name is Gary Shearer from the Savile Foundation, and I cultivate my soul by walking in forests as often as possible, surfing whenever I can, and being in nature. Gary Shearer is CEO of the Savile Foundation, working around the globe within education and enablement of individuals and communities. Born and schooled in Johannesburg, South Africa, Gary has a rich, full-spectrum business experience. This includes co-founding the award-winning wine trading entity, Cape Classics, Inc. In 2006, he sold his shares to participate in the realm of social change. Gary's full bio is available on our podcast website. Gary, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for coming. Melissa, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. It's a, it's a wonderful honor, and I've been watching and learning with and from Synagogues for some time, so I'm delighted to be here. Well, thank you, and we're just thrilled to get to know your work today. So I'd like to get us started by asking you to share a memory or a story from your life that was instrumental in shaping your views on what matters. My story is more of an experience because I grew up in a Christian environment and went to church, my parents, from the time I was very, very young and got very involved in the church. And in fact, at one stage in my late teens, I was even considering becoming a minister because when I get involved in things, I go really deeply into them. And as I got older, I started, and I hope I don't offend anybody by saying this, noticing so much hypocrisy in what, what I was being told to do and taught and seeing in the people around me. And so I went on my own journey after school. It was a crazy, wild journey, as with many of us, but it involved lots of soul searching and looking for other ways of thinking and being with regard to the other side, the spiritual side of, of life, I guess. Wonderful. And can I ask, what struck you during that time or what's still with you from that time? I think there was a lot of initial disappointment in in what I'd been taught not being there as present as I thought. And obviously, those are my own perceptions. They may not have been right, but that's what I felt at the time. I also learned that there was another whole side to life. And I'm saying that really tongue-in-cheek because I grew up as such a good boy in a good environment that I went and explored, shall we say, other realms. And I became, my parents say I gave them a lot of gray hair. I was a very wild 20-something person for most of my 20s as I was searching and seeing what else there was that I hadn't been shown because I was brought up in a very, not cloistered environment, but a very disciplined environment. And so I went and found that there were other places and spaces to explore. And as I do, I went into them with gusto and over-enthusiasm. And how would you say that experience, or maybe it doesn't have to be from that experience, but what really drives your passion today? My passion is that I believe so much in humanity and people and the capabilities each one of us have and aren't generally aware of. I think society's boxed us all so terribly. Education, in my opinion, limits beliefs. It limits us finding out who we are. It limits us knowing who we are. And I learned that 
in the journey when I had children because both of my children went to a Rudolf Steiner school and their education was so deep and rich and varied and wide and all-encompassing that I just started seeing and hearing things that I hadn't considered. And that made a big difference to my life and how I operate. In fact, I always say to people that I learned more in seven years on the school board because they asked a couple of businessmen to join the board, sitting with these very alternative thinkers. I literally learned more in seven years there than I believe I've learned in 40 years of business. That's wonderful. Well, I know we're going to get a little bit into the Seville Foundation, the work you're doing there in a bit. But, you know, I know from what I've seen in that work, you talk about inside out. So we also explore that at Synergos and on this podcast. So before we get into the work aspect, I'd like to dig a little deeper into the inside of Gary. Can you tell us what inspires you about this work that you're doing? What really kind of makes you want to jump out of bed in the morning? You know, Melissa, my whole life, I've loved people. I love being with people. I love connecting to them. And so after my business career, in which I really connected well to people too and found that was an element. If you engage deeply with people and see them for who they are and treat them with respect, things happen that are outside of the norm. And I never did any of that because I wanted something from anybody. I just did it because I, I really do. I found as I've got older and realized that that's why I was very successful and connected so well with people across the spectrum. And it was really a helpful, don't like to use the word tool, but an element of what I had to offer. So being with people and seeing them for who they were, finding out who they were, connecting at a deeper level than just the business allowed, brought so much richness and value to the relationships I had and still have and opened doors remarkably. It actually taught me that business is so much more. You know, we get taught to do things in a certain way, but those elements of genuine connection and respect, genuinely seeing people for what they were. And I had experiences where when people left a big corporate, because I was in the IT industry in my early career, and I used to work with, you know, the big Enron and Mobile and those kind of guys. One of the IT managers left and he went to a new job and I called him and he said, why are you calling me? I said, I'm just checking up on you. And he said, I can't believe this. No one's ever done this for me. And I didn't realize the impact that kind of connection had. He said, because I can't give you business here. I said, no, I'm not calling for business. I'm just calling because, you know, we have a relationship and I'm following up on that. And that started showing me the value of relationship, but genuine, deep relationship. And so in 2006, you left the business sector and you moved into the social change space. What drove that move for you? Well, if I knew, I probably would, wouldn't be sitting here today because I operate so instinctively right through my business career. When I was doing well and somebody offered me an opportunity to start up an entity for them, I would go and start something new. So I've loved that creative space all the time. And after Nelson Mandela was released and my brother and I started an export entity, which turned into a wine entity, which is now a 30-year-old entity in New York City, based headquartered in New York City, I realized that I didn't like business just for business's sake. So once the company was set up, I started getting restless. And a friend of mine asked me to go and investigate an education project for him. Now in our export, wine export entity, we'd been sponsoring students at university of Stellenbosch, wine-based students. We've been giving bursaries out and that sort of thing. So we were engaged in this space. And so when I realized that, and I was asked by this friend to go and look at this education initiative on behalf of him and his wife, I took her up and we looked at it and stayed there for four days. And on the fourth day, I said to this man, how are you going to do this? How are you going to create a rural university, a rural agricultural college under a tree? 
and get a building and make it into something substantial. He said, I have no idea. And I said to him, good, I'm coming to join you. And I didn't process that myself. I just knew I'd been restless. And I knew that that was the calling, the moment that I got my calling, actually. And I stepped out much to the concern and horror of my Lara, as well as my family and everybody around me. To leave a successful entity in mid-flight and start from scratch was crazy to most people. But I just, in something inside me, made me do it or drove me to do it. And four months later, I reconnected with Duncan Seville, much to my delight and, and gratitude. So fast forward almost two decades, you're the CEO of the Seville Foundation. So tell us about that. What are you doing there and what do you hope to achieve? Firstly, it's been almost two decades, but it's been the most remarkable journey because Duncan and I were at school together in the 70s. And so we know each other well, and we've been on an incredible journey together of exploration and learning and allowing from his side for us to really just go and investigate what's out there and to dig as deeply as we can. Because we started off thinking that we were businessmen who knew what to do. So we were investing in things that we thought would give a return or that we'd been informed would work. And gradually we started learning. And probably over a decade ago now, we changed our mode of operation entirely. It's where we are today in the space of what people are now calling trust-based philanthropy using things like unrestricted funding and all these terms that have become in vogue now that have been very much part of how we've operated because we started learning and listening, looking more deeply, listening to the communities, listening to the people who helped them, listening to the NGOs who worked with them, and then supporting them in their endeavor, not for our gain, not for what we wanted, not for the budgets we had to spend, but for what they wanted. And so we've made sure that we've been a a very different kind of entity, not intentionally, but just because we really started listening deeply. And so we have some partnerships now, two that started, that Duncan had invested in before I started, that are now nearly 20 years old. And we have many multi-year initiatives that we've been supporting, again, as partners, to be there with them on their journey and do whatever we can to help, be it bringing in finance, but that's not where we start. We engage strategically first. We understand who they are. We get deeply involved in their operation and how they manage themselves, manage their finances, if necessary. Not everyone's like that. And we become part of the team. And again, that becomes such a warm, connected relationship that a whole lot of different elements come out of it. And so we found that we're in a really, really interesting position now where some of the initiatives we've been involved in for some time are really, truly ready to deliver. And we've leveraged some really wonderful partnerships for them. All very heartwarming and all not for us. We just absolutely love what we're doing and are very grateful to be in a role like we are in a position that we are. That's wonderful. Yeah, I love what you have on your website about the work that you do. I'm just going to quote this here. Working inside out with people at the center is the only way to invoke genuine change. Absolutely. And unequivocally, I've come from the technology sector before the wine career. I love technology, but you can't start with technology. You've got to go so much deeper. And too many responses nowadays start with interventions, a word that we don't like at all for this sector. We should never intervene. We should engage, support, partner, nourish, all sorts of other ways of being in the sector rather than intervene. And unless you get to know the people and who they are and what their real requirements are, there's a really good chance you're going to be wrong and things aren't going to work. So we've seen a lot of that kind of approach in philanthropy. And again, I hope I'm not offending anybody. No, no. 
we've invited you on the podcast to share this approach that you're doing now, nearly two decades, and there's so much learnings that's available. People approach their philanthropy, as we've seen through the Global Philanthropist Circle, in so many different ways. But there's so much that we can learn from each other. So that's really the point of sharing these stories. Just to understand it a bit more, can you maybe speak about a specific example so we can understand how you've done this or even understand more the types of groups that you're partnering with? Sure. I think certainly our top three exemplars is one that is literally a consciousness-based institute. It's um, called the Maharishi Institute based in Johannesburg. And it's a very, very special entity. And we had worked with them that's one of the ones where Duncan had provided some funding to a, an initiative that eventually stopped working and for various reasons. And we offered to seed fund the founder, his name is Taddy Bletcher, in the Maharishi Institute. And that journey has been extraordinary because not only have we been close to him providing seed funding, we've stayed very close. We're engaged with them in their big picture strategic vision. We're engaged in their needs on a lesser basis. And we've watched them grow since 2007 into an entity that's now gone so deep. We're so delighted to be involved with Taddy Bletcher because not only is the entity conscious, it's taken students from really disadvantaged backgrounds who've come from realm, walks of life that we just don't understand. And many of them, most of them, not with the highest degrees, just with a matric pass, as it's called in South Africa, and turning them into such well-rounded individuals that the corporates are lining up to take them once they graduate. Um, they get a holistic education. They do transcendental meditation twice a day. They do all sorts of self-worth programs. They do real on-the-job experiential programs and so many other things, and they get a degree. So they come out in a very different position to the average student who, again, in inverted commas, just comes out with a degree and may or may not have the tools to function well in the world. And that journey with Taddy has been, continues till to, until today. We've just been part of him accessing some really substantial support to go into some of the other countries that have asked for the model to be taken there. And he's now ready because the other thing we like about it is they've gone really, really deep in their model. They've had such demand to expand elsewhere, but they haven't done that. They've just kept focused and they've built up a wonderful endowment to help themselves become, I think there's something like, 70 or 80% sustainable already, which is remarkable because they provide free education, almost free. It's 200 rand, which is 10 pounds a month for students to attend the university. And they've got a pay it forward model. So it's got so many rich elements to it. We've learned enormously from the journey. And that's what we love, being creative, being in the moment, learning and listening and being able to adapt and go with them as they learn and adapt and move and flow. It's wonderful. So it sounds like you have a bit of a method as to how you engage as a partner. You provide seed funding, which allows, I suppose, newer organizations or initiatives to get started. But you also commit to staying with them for a longer time period. And you work with them quite hands-on in developing strategy or finances or wherever there are needs around that. Would you say that's correct? Yes, you know, we don't always seed fund. What we do is, for instance, we got involved in the early childhood sector some eight or nine years ago, and we then go and investigate the sector. But we don't do it in the same way everybody does. We don't rely on external data for our, our impressions and our perspectives. We get very involved in the sector. We talk to the teachers in the schools. We talk to the people, the NGOs in the sector. 
who really know what's going on on the ground. If we're lucky enough, as we have been a number of times, we find someone who is responding to what we think is what the sector needs from what we've heard, and then we'll get involved. The entity I'm talking about at the moment is one called GROW, ECD, GROW Early Childhood Development. When we saw what they were doing and heard what they were doing, we got involved with them right at the starting up phase. And with a couple of other entities, we put up funding for the first four or five years, and we're still deeply involved in what they do. And once the journey is underway, see, we can't commit to a 20-year journey until we've seen that it's actually working. But when it doesn't, we, always, we don't just withdraw. We withdraw gradually and gracefully and with advice and support. And that hasn't happened often, again, because we've been fortunate in who we've connected with and how they've operated and delivered. So what would you advise to a philanthropist or a funder who says, wow, that sounds like a really great approach, but how do I go about doing that? What advice would you give? That's such a multi-layered question, really, because many philanthropists have boards. And the boards, in my experience, are often not as in touch as they need to be. And dare I say it, often the philanthropy team are also relying on external information. We've seen that so many times over the years. It's all about engaging personally and deeply to understand what's truly required, not from our perspective as Western capitalist people, I guess I could say, but as people who, who've listened carefully to those in each sector or in each region or in each community that you're working with, each education facility, and responding to them and their needs. And so the main word is listen. You know, the two words that drive us are listening and inside out, because when we see and hear what we think we see and hearing in a sector, we then look for the people who are working inside out, nurturing of people to understand themselves, uplift themselves. I mean, we all know many of the areas that we work in are terribly out of the, the realm of, that we live in, that the Western world deems is the, is the way to live. We can't expect that they'll just deal with all of that very easily. We need to really engage differently, I believe. And sometimes do what we don't think is appropriate to start with. I think sometimes, and this is quite contentious actually, I think even the SDGs are something that's been set externally. Even though there were a lot of internal queries and I know there was a lot of work that went behind into them, the SDGs themselves are now by their own admission some 80 to 90 years and a trillion and a half dollars behind being delivered. But if we just took the time and changed that dynamic, and people do need all the elements that are in the SDGs, I'm certainly not denying that. But if we change the way of doing it, I worked with a very special lady from Morocco whose name is Karima Kadoy, and she said, if we really engaged with the communities and listened to what they wanted to say, we could transcend the goals that we were setting. And you would take away the need to get to a goal because everybody would be so engaged in their own upliftment. And I know it's a bit of a, a left field approach in theory, but we truly believe in it because Things aren't working the way they're supposed to be, and we keep falling behind on these goals we set. So we have to find a new way through, is our belief. Yeah, much of traditional philanthropy has those boxes that they've set, and then they work to fill those boxes or tick the boxes. So I understand that you listen and that you engage, but in more practical terms, how are you meeting people and the organizations that you partner with? It's been a long, slow journey because we don't just accept proposals online or unsolicited proposals. We strategically go and look into sectors to see what's there. And when we see something that we think that is of value and that we can support, we'll go there. And so there are many, many deep conversations, uh, many aspects of 
how we can understand and improve how we operate and what we're thinking about and where we can engage before we do. That's great. And so if you have somebody, if someone says, I want to do that, what lessons have you learned along the way that can help them not make same mistakes you've made, but allow more people to use this approach in their philanthropy? I think we go back again to the word trust. And trust comes out of relationships and time. And so the more time we spend with people, you know, too often there are forms that get filled in and assessments get made online and then responses happen. And if we just transcended that and bridged that gap and more directly involved, I think we would see a different picture and hear a different story and be able to engage differently as a result. So I think those are the elements that lead to deeper relationships and partnerships that can start operating differently and which enable change, which enable thing, directions to be changed if required or strategies to be altered as you learn more and more. Because too often we get fixed on what we thought we'd see and are trying to deliver to. And that shouldn't be the point. Life is fluid and life's always changing. So we should be fluid and be prepared to change as well as we go. And I think often philanthropy is, is far too rigid. I've often heard people getting very irritated that I don't have a board to report it because even though we're well-resourced, we're small. So we're able to engage, but we're able to move quickly as well because we'll go and look deeply into things and then I'll present and discuss them with Duncan Savile and if we're happy, we'll engage. And then the journey begins. That's wonderful. I think there's so many rich learnings there around just recognizing that building trust-based relationships takes time. This is not something that can just happen quickly or on a certain time schedule. We have these grant funding cycles and strategic priorities oftentimes in philanthropy. So, you know, how can we start to look at that from this lens? Absolutely. Just last week, we were asked to be part of a, a national ECD group in South Africa, and we were asked to fill in a funder's form because we're part of the funding community. And we dislike that word too, because we don't want to see, be seen as this funder. We want to be seen as a partner. And eventually, after trying to fill the form in three times, I just wrote to them and I said, we don't operate like this. And they said, you know, how refreshing. Thank you for responding like that. Because we just couldn't answer their formal tick box questions. And again, I'm not belittling or saying what they're doing is right or wrong, but it's just not how we operate. So we're very blessed. I've had people get very agitated with us that we don't have a board between Duncan and myself. But we're always checking ourselves. We listen carefully to the people we support and we listen. Because we listen, we hear things and we prepare to shift our lenses and worldview whenever we see that we may have been doing the wrong thing or engaging incorrectly. Great. Well, this kind of takes me to my next question around the shifting landscape in philanthropy. We have this traditional philanthropy we've talked about, but there are many models that are out there today and it continues to evolve and change. What would you say are some of the greatest or the greatest tension or challenge that you see facing global philanthropy today? In a nutshell, if I had to make a statement, we have to get over ourselves because the sector has built up into a sector now. It's a very powerful business sector, business kind of sector, where there's certain ways of operating and certain budgets to spend. And we don't set a budget every year. We do, as we call it, what's appropriate. We have varied budgets. We zero sum start of the year. We go through the year and we know what's coming up. We, you know, we've got 17 years of traction. We know more or less what's coming up. We aren't fixed on spending a certain amount of money. So I think there's a lot of shift that could happen in philanthropy, but it'll take a long time. I'm sure a lot of people will think what I'm saying is a little crazy, 
But we really need to find different ways of doing things in this era. Heavens knows there's enough chaos outside in the world. And I personally am not seeing the traction and, and shift that we're all desperate to see. They are in, in microcosms and in small spaces and places, but not all over the place. Yeah. From what we're seeing, at least from our lens with the Global Philanthropist Circle and the work of Synergos, is that there are shifts taking place and there are people, this is not a new shift for you. This is something you've already been doing for a while, but how do we raise more voices of alternative models, alternative ways of getting engaged to be in partnership uh, with, with leaders of civil society and organizations to make the change we all want to achieve in the world through this work? Absolutely, Melissa. I think I'm seeing over the last five years, to my delight, when I ask challenging questions in forums or make statements that people don't agree with, there's more and more people coming to talk afterwards and say, can we engage? We're looking. That was wonderful. We're also looking into that space and we'd like to go. We've connected with groups all over the world who are looking at shift. I mean, we're not unique. We've had a very, I think, unique journey and a different journey. But to our delight, there's more and more foundations listening differently as well and looking at how they can shift. In fact, we've seen some really substantial shifts in some fairly large foundations too, which is really exciting because I truly believe in in philanthropy. Philanthropy is a love of humanity. I do this because I love humanity. I didn't give up our company, which is generating wonderful revenue, to for any other reason than to to be part of assisting and guiding and loving and caring wherever I could. Well, it sounds like you're really doing that on a daily basis. So I'd like to appreciate the work that you're doing. For my last question, I would love to know what would be the ultimate vision of the work that you're doing? What change would you like to see? It's about what we've been talking about. I'd love to see philanthropy put its ego down, for want of a better word, and for more and more people to engage in saying, what else can we do? How else can we operate? What other possibilities are there beyond what we think we know and who we are? I mean, we've got all the tools, we've got the finance, we've got all the elements to do work. But my belief is that we're just missing the closest, the last mile, the last few inches that connect to people, that connect directly to situations, and that nurture those people and those situations and the the realms that they're in. And that sometimes that might be completely different to what we were expecting to do or believing we should do. But we must go along with it because we are all different. It's about people flourishing. It's about the world flourishing. It's about us consciously changing how people think and operate around the world so that we can understand each other better, engage in a far more loving, kind way with each other, with nature, with what we do and how we operate. And I think the world's so fragmented and separate at the moment, particularly the first world. It's really interesting as people, all of us, as we get more income and we get more successful, we move into bigger and bigger houses that are more and more separate from everybody else. We work in communities where everybody are very close because they have to be. They look after each other incredibly. In Africa, there's a word called Ubuntu, which I'm sure everybody on this forum will know about. And, And it's really tangible. When you go into the rural communities of Africa, it's there. Ubuntu, I am because you are. For me, that would shift the world and philanthropy can do it, along with business. I believe business has a huge role to play. And through our own corporate system and through connections we have, we're working in that realm too, to say, please stop and, and engage differently. Work with your staff, work with the regions that you're involved in, work in the communities that are near you and see how you can really uplift them for what they require and just shift everything. So that's my 
vision of the world that philanthropy and business get together, become more conscious, and deliver more deeply because governments are so stressed and often out of touch too. I mean, we all know that around the world at the moment, that they can almost not be relied on. So I think it's up to all of us. We need all sectors to be working towards this and doing it in a way that you've just been telling us about what you're doing with the foundation, really people-centered through listening and inside out. So Gary, how can people learn about your work? Is there a website where they can learn more about what you're doing? Yes, there is. The website is www.tsf, the Savile Foundation, .bm. It's an unusual name, but it's the Savile Foundation registered in Bermuda, hence the BM. And it's due for an upgrade again. We learn so much all the time. We were really pleased, I think it was about two and a half years ago, with what we did. I know it's not where we're at now, but in this frenetic world we're in, we're just not getting to it quickly enough. So that's our next intention. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for sharing the work that you do and your personal story as well. We appreciate it. We look forward to being in touch. It's been a great pleasure and I look forward to getting closer to Synagos and how you all operate. I love your approach and I love what you stand for and deeply value that as well. So thank you. What I loved about this conversation with Gary is learning about their approach to philanthropy. Genuine partnerships are built by deep listening and developing trusting relationships. <laughs>